This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Tennessee. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the cold, you know so well, sisters speak everyone, Amelia here. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast for season three. Today we're in Tennessee and I'm sharing this episode a little earlier than planned because today also marks the day that the Supreme Court of the U.S. will hear arguments in a landmark case that addresses the question of whether or not LGBTQ plus people deserve legal protection from being fired on the basis of gendered discrimination or discrimination on the basis of sexuality. At the center of that case that's in the Supreme Court today is a woman named Amy Stevens. Uh, She's a trans woman who was fired from her job at a funeral home after coming out as trans. I'm going to link to an article that she published in Out Magazine about this um, incident and kind of her reflection on it on the eve of the case being heard in the Supreme Court. I'm also going to link to an article by Teen Vogue editor Lucy Diabolo about um, her experience as a trans woman and how she sees this case potentially impacting her future. So you can find those in the show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast. So today is a, an incredibly important day for the LGBTQ plus community. And in this episode, I talked to Jasmine Tasaki, who is a black trans woman living in Memphis, who is also the founder and executive director of an organization called We Care Tennessee that provides mutual aid for black trans women of color in Tennessee. And I wanted to share this episode today particularly because I think it just goes to show how much discrimination and violence the trans community faces in the United States, as well as how much resilient care and support they provide for themselves and each other. And I really wanted to take this moment to just say that I and this podcast stand behind all of the LGBTQ plus folks who will be watching this case very closely and rightfully concerned for how it impacts their everyday life and employment opportunities for the rest of their lives. Before we get into this episode, I also wanted to say that the protection of trans folks from a deeply transphobic nation is of utmost importance right now. Over the summer, the American Medical Association declared an epidemic of violence against trans people in the United States after 18 trans people, mostly trans women of color, have been killed in the U.S. just this year. And I wanted to share their names before we get to this interview with Jasmine. So in their honor, we remember Dana Martin, Jasmine Ware, Ashanti Carmen, Claire Legato, Malaysia Booker. Michelle Tamika Washington, Paris Cameron, Shina Lindsay, Chanel Skurlock, Zoe Spears, Brooklyn Lindsay, Denali Barry Stuckey, Kiki Fontroy, Jordan Kofer, Pebbles Ladim Dime Doe, Tracy Single, Bailey Reeves, 
beloved Slater and others who we may never hear about, whose stories may not be reported and who we miss dearly. I don't think that we need the American Medical Association to declare something an epidemic for us to care about it and want to change it, but I do think that it heightens, hopefully, the visibility of these losses and makes all of us pause and reflect on how we're supporting our trans community members today and every day. So this case goes to the Supreme Court today, but also remembering that this violence is ongoing, that it is a matter of life and death, and that it needs our utmost attention. I also just wanted to recognize that that list I just read is from HRC, Human Rights Campaign. They do a report on the violence against the transgender community every year. But I think it's also worth noting that many leading trans activists and advocates have recently spoken out against HRC and its much publicized um, new positioning of the fight for trans liberation. And I'm going to link to an open letter from uh, many transgender and non-binary community leaders that really kind of explains their critique of the new platform and what's going on there. So while I'm relying here on that list from HRC to name the trans folks that we've lost this year, I also just want to acknowledge that there are definitely important critiques of HRC to be made that are being made by trans community leaders. And you can read about all of that again in the show notes at 50feministates.com slash podcast. All of that said, I want to introduce and celebrate today's interview with Jasmine Tasaki. She is a phenomenal woman who has done so much important work in Memphis. Also the founder and executive director of an organization called We Care Tennessee. We Care Tennessee is the first trans-founded nonprofit in Tennessee. And the fact that it works to serve trans women of color, explicitly to serve trans women of color who have been or are sex workers, to support them in all sorts of ways from job readiness programs to direct financial support to computer literacy to just making sure they have community and care and love for themselves and each other. It's just such an amazing organization. And I am so happy to be able to share this conversation that Jasmine and I had over the summer with all of you. So in this episode, we're actually just going to hear my conversation with Jasmine directly. It won't be edited and voiced over as some of the previous episodes have been. We'll hear more about why that's the case next week, but I'm so excited to share this conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. Thanks so much to Jasmine for making the time to talk with me. And without further ado, here she is. I am Jasmine Sasaki. I'm the executive director and founder of We Care Tennessee. I'm originally from Memphis. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of this your story that led to you founding We Care Tennessee? It's long. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I began to feel, well, you know, I didn't ever feel different. So I'll start from this. I was molested at an early age and I didn't realize it. I thought I fantasized about it the first time. But yeah, uh, so I have been feeling how I feel ever since I can remember. Um, but there was a certain amount of shame that came with that and um, that developed over time as I got older. And I realized that, you know, um, how I felt and how I presented myself and the sex that I was assigned at birth, I realized all that didn't match. And I also realized that people didn't really receive that well, that experience or even that idea or thought in that time. I'm 36 years old. So, and I, <clears throat> so 
that was maybe 88. I was five years old and it was really, I knew then really at five. So that was something that really was not considered to be the normal, especially down in the South, especially, um, my dad is Japanese and white. My mom is black. So especially in a black family from the South, it was pretty hard to communicate that. So, um, went on to, um, and I always lived a great childhood. I had a great childhood. I participated in many things. I acted. I was in dance. Uh, I was deep into choral activities. So, um, yeah, I had a great childhood, but by the time I was 13, I really began my transition, uh, well, began the part of my transition where I expressed myself publicly. And I was very bold and brave in those choices. And from there, my life just went a lot of places. Uh, I kind of had a life that was a double life. There was a lot of duality to that life because, you know, I still did everything my parents and my family wanted me to do, but I still express myself as well, you know, um, as a woman. But I think because I didn't have that support, I made a lot of bad decisions and I got involved in a lot of crazy things. Fast forward to moving to Atlanta. So by the time I moved to Atlanta, I was well into my, I was probably 26 or 27. And um, life had taken a toll on me as far as like my goals. So I I always wanted to be an actress or a designer, a wardrobe stylist, makeup artist, hairstylist. Uh, and I ended up doing hair and makeup, and um, I was really good at it. But I also engaged in sex work from the time I was about 17 on up. And um, it was something that I did for years. And I think that that fast money, for one, kind of hindered my evolution as a hairstylist and makeup artist, I kind of got stuck. And um, I began to feel different about doing that particular work. So I got back into doing hair and makeup heavily. And I quit that work and moved to Atlanta, got there and kind of got sucked back into the lifestyle of sex work and uh, decided to move back to Memphis, moved back to Memphis and um, ended up. So I've also been shot. I've been shot four times. So this would have, this made the fourth time, but that hadn't happened to me in plenty of years. So, um, after being shot, I just, you know, my life had come full circle and, um, I was just really doing some self-assessment and I just started to volunteer with an organization called Peace Partnership to End AIDS Status. And I'd done plenty of advocacy and stuff before, you know, around rape around domestic violence because I had been I was in a relationship for six years where I was an abuse I mean a victim of domestic abuse so I went to volunteer and it, they created a position for me and I, I really enjoyed that work so got into the work and worked there for two years and started my own organization um a lot of the work and the support that is geared specifically towards trans women of color here in Tennessee or in the South period, especially Memphis, was um, about health, sexual health and just HIV prevention. And that's something that's needed. I was doing prep navigation. That's something that's needed too. But I, I was thinking, hey, why don't we have some support here for trans women who are positive or negative? And also, why don't we have support here for trans women who engage in sex work? Because that's a reality. 
um, why don't we have programs here for trans women who use drugs? That's a reality. So, um, yeah, I started my organization and I specifically created programs to work with trans women of color who engage in sex work and who use drugs, whether they're HIV positive or negative. And so many other, you know, programs have just from that nucleus there's so many programs that I have created that speaks to the holistic approach of trying to help my people. Thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> as, as you told a very long story in a really eloquent and I tried. Um, vulnerable I was way. trying to think of like, I, I left a lot of things I'm out. I'm sure. It's a long <laughs> life. So yeah. Yes. Um, could you talk a little bit more specifically about some of those programs you've created and the work that you do through We Care Tennessee? So our main program that is proven to be really successful is TransPro. So it's a job readiness program for sex workers, led by sex workers, and that can be current or former. Um, and it's a healing justice space to, one, allow them to heal from any trauma or any grievances, for lack of a better term, that they have experienced during that work. And they have not really had a platform to express that and and or want to fellowship with people who may share that same struggle, right? Creating community. So um yeah, that's what we've done with Transpro. And after we do the piece about healing justice, we transition into job readiness skills. And um wow, I mean, just some of the some of the things that have amazed me before I can even go on about the program. It's just the fact that we as people forget that sex workers are some of the smartest people <laughs> and I think that they're really good at like conflict resolution they're really good at branding there's so many things um that kind of intersect with sex work and just being a great employee or a great boss in general um so that program has really shown us a lot but within the program, we go over a lot of things. So we go over short-term and long-term goals. We go over professional goal planning because that's something completely different. Um, <clears throat> we talk about code switch, which is um, when you go in a room and you have to adjust or you feel you have to adjust how you speak in order for people to respect you and understand you. We talk about ethic in the workplace. We touch on computer literacy. Um Another program I has actually does a more in-depth class around computer literacy. So, but in Transpro, we touch on computer literacy. We touch on just the basic grooming skills for work and how to dress for an interview, um, what clothes may or may not work. And then we even dive into depending on what type of job you're interviewing for. for. So, yeah, we do a lot. Um, that's just a piece of what we do with Transpro. Uh, we also have what I call the Emergency Fund Program. So we have a support group. And from that support group, they can either request emergency funds or refer someone to request emergency funds. We then do a mini counseling session with them. Um, well, it, we call it an assessment, but a lot of times it's more counseling because being from the community myself, I pretty much already know what they're going through and I can kind of identify it. So it turns into counseling, although I'm assessing them, you know, I'm always trying to uplift and encourage them through their situations. And then you find that a lot of them 
have been able to navigate through these situations, right, in life and haven't had someone to depend on or an organization to support them. So a lot of the times it's just me saying, hey, you have somebody that's here that can help. Um, and, you know, if I can make that happen, that that should alleviate some of the stress that you're going through. And I think that they really like their program because I try not to. So they come and they get assessed and we talk and then they get the money. I have them fill out the form because I think that with a lot of programs that people offer to trans women, they want so much from us. But, you know, a, a, a gift card, a meal or my program, we allot $250 for the emergency, but even $250, I mean, that can only fix something for a small amount of time. We need to be realistic. You know, it's not like we're changing your financial stability with one. So I don't think that it's right to ask someone who's already going through so much, hey, can you take time at your day to be here for a couple of hours and then the next time to and the next time too, and then we'll give you two fifty. Now I wanted to make a program where they can come, tell us the emergency, get it off their chest, and we be a direct impact on that emergency. So another program we have is where we put money on trans women who are incarcerated books for commissary. And um the ladies from TransPro write postcards, letters, and just like We'll, and we'll we'll actually have them call us sometimes if they can call us on a day. Like, we'll try to set it up. We could talk on the phone, and they can tell us some pictures they may like. So just continuing community beyond the walls of the jail because so many people feel alone. And then a lot of times when you're transgender, you get in jail, you're alone. And they put you in isolation. So wanted to find a way to continue that as well, that community. And uh, we have some other projects coming up. Don't really want to talk about them, but they will address homelessness. They will address drug abuse or drug use and the difference between the two. Uh, Better known as harm reduction. (laughs) So we've got some big things coming up and I'm really excited. You're doing so much. I'm wondering how many people are involved with We Care Tennessee. Is it? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> how does it actually happen? So I have two staff members, uh, Katrina Spencer and Amaya Doty. And I have a couple of volunteers. I have a really great board of directors. Shout out to my board of directors. Um, and... I think that the beginning of my journey in doing the work specifically for We Care, a lot of the support came from like my mentor, friends, family, and my fiscal sponsor. Before I got my 501c3, my fiscal sponsor was the organization that I worked for before I started my own, and that is Peace Partnership to NAID Status. So um, everyone kind of rallied around me and was there to support me. Now, I also was the Health Literacy and Advocacy Chair for the National Urban League of Young Professionals. I was the first person in the history of their 108-year existence to be trans and be a leader in the organization, and they have 366 affiliate chapters. They... um had a great rebirth here in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I was a part of that rebirth. And my direct president, Latricia Adams, um, 
she was also a strong support for me and some key members out of the Urban League. But yes, Latricia Adams, my mentor, Arisha Bowers. Um, Darnisha Duncan is another mentor of mine. She's from Birmingham. Uh, she's a transgender woman that founded Take, and now she is an executive director for Trans United. So I've had like lots and lots of support. Miss Major um, supports me. Sharon Grayson supports me. That's my auntie. So there is a lot of people that supported me, but doing the direct work with it started off just me, but it was soon to get employees and my employees. I love them so much because they don't make money. You know, they make a little here and there, but you know, they're really doing this because of their connection to the community. So yeah, I I think my employees and my volunteers, they are key in helping this work to evolve right because we want it to continue to grow and we want the work to be impactful so that takes you know staff to do the same the staff has to grow and you know there has to be some intention intentionality about how we're moving you know past who we hire that's on my end but from the staff's perspective there needs to be purpose and I picked these ladies these they didn't have to interview Katrina and Amaya were both people that their spirits spoke strong to me and I'd worked with them before in different capacities. Well, with Amaya in the same capacity, actually, we were coworkers. She gave me when I got shot and I wanted to volunteer when I talked about what brought me into this work. She was a person to give me that opportunity. So it, it was, it was only natural and it was very humbling to be able to give her that same opportunity three years later. I love how those, those like legacies of lifting people up, really like lifting each other up Mm -hmm. spread. And that's really beautiful. Because sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down and it's even better. It felt, it felt great to help people um, in the same way that someone helped me because it changed my life. um, And it put me on a different path and I'm loving this new life. It seems evident. You (laughs) just like radiate happiness, which is wonderful. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about so a lot of people who listen to this podcast won't be from Memphis. Right. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the community that you're serving here? So these trans women of color who may be sex workers or not, it sounds like. Right. Um, how many people are you able to serve? How do they come to We Care Tennessee? What are the kind of needs that they have? We've heard about some of them, but could you just share a little bit more about the community? Okay. So Memphis, Tennessee is deeply rooted in racism, um, heterosexism, transphobia, homophobia, and it's in the Bible Belt. So with that, you have a community of trans women who are underserved and marginalized even more than the other minority groups here, right? Because there are a lot of minorities here that are underserved and they're marginalized. But trans women of color specifically go through a little more than those communities. Um, And in the political climate we're in now, it can be scary because there's no legislation. Well, I'm sorry, there's legislation somewhat to support us and back us. But now we're in fear that that legislation may be pulled. So... I just feel a need to address, you know, and serve trans women of color specifically because 
I see where it can go. It can repeat itself, you know, even to racism because we're thinking about dismantling systems, right? So if they break down trans people, the next best, I mean, the only thing next in line can be to break us down according to race. So also in Memphis, this is one of those cities where there's a lot of violence against trans women. Like I said, I've been shot four times and that's just my story. And my story is one that is privileged. I have a certain amount of privilege that a lot of trans women may not be able to identify with, right? And I know that if I've had these struggles, they've had to have them as well. Um, But yeah, so Memphis is a really rough place to live. And it also depends on who you're around, your mindset, what you do. Not so much as where you go, because you know, we, we know that people come from different walks of life everywhere. And there's some great people here in Memphis and there's some great areas here in Memphis. But there's some issues that are pressing that causes people to act out or or some people suppress those issues and never talk about it and they manifest later. That's what went on with me. So this this city is, wow, it's a lot of struggle here and it's a lot of love here, but there's a lot of hate here. So trying to center these women is what I'm my goal is you know I can't change the world but I can help change engage how they see the world how they view the world and that can help them to navigate themselves properly to get where they want to be because there are some people that live great lives here in Memphis Tennessee and I want trans women of color to be in that number so I think that you know yeah we do live in a place rooted in struggle rooted in fear a lot of the the bad things here or, or the hate what looks like hate what looks like violence what looks like sexual addiction drug addiction what looks like trauma actually comes largely from a place of fear I don't know if you know this is the city where Martin Luther King was killed and I think that that's a profound thing to look at because we're still in that space here in Memphis. There's people that are not progressive and there are people that are willing to hurt people and take lives for their own opinions and their own agendas. So, yeah, I think that this is a very hard place to be, but there is some great Thing, there are some great things about Memphis and there is some good that can come out of living here if it's just addressed properly. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about that kind of mindset shift that you were talking about trying to work with people on. Um, and kind of what are you shifting from and moving toward? Well, I think that what I see being a big issue for trans women of color in the South is uh, the mindset that makes us feel we have to be accepted by the heterosexual community. We have to accept those heteronormative standards and morals and roles because gender can be a really fluid thing. And I think that this, our community, particularly trans women of color has adapted a lot of standards that may not be good for the inside although they may reflect a beautiful look it tears away the inside and I think that it begins to take precedent over everything else and it's was first right so like this morning I was really tired I didn't want to put on makeup and I you know so I didn't but some trans women of color would have been extremely late for this interview because they would have 
felt the need to, you know, look a certain way. So changing or not necessarily changing because I'm very glamorous. Um, I'm actually, I'm nominated for an award tonight and one for in the morning at a brunch. So yeah, I just feel like, oh, I'm going to really be glamorous for both of those so I can hold back. But yeah, so not, I don't want to say changing because it's good, right? As a woman to want to feel your best and look your best, but just changing the priorities or changing what's most important in your life because you know, if your looks are the most important, you're more likely to continue work or continue a profession that is solely based on your looks. You may never really discover other talents that you have. Or you may know those talents, but you don't cultivate and nurture those talents. Same thing with relationships. If your perspective is is dead set on things that are different from another person, how will you all ever connect and, and, and develop something? And I think that's important because trans women of color already, we're isolated, we're ostracized. So finding ways to connect to people who can help influence our lives is important. And we don't really have that um, because we're seen almost as a fantasy if people look at us in a good way, we're seen as a nightmare <laughs> to some people. So I think that, you know, truly being connected with yourself and, and, and just being focused on whatever you want. So I'm not talking about changing their mindset to whatever I want. I'm just saying taking their minds and wiping it clean and clear of all of the fears and all of the reservations and all of the prerequisites that other people place on our lives in order for us to live life right so yeah just changing it from like feeling bad to feeling good because as a trans woman I know when I wake up I feel good when I think about my life in comparison or when I think about my life and I say okay well I'm about to go here what everyone else thinks still comes right into my mind and I've learned to say you know what what they think doesn't matter but there's a lot of trans women out there that have not gotten away from that, you know, being worried about what people think or, or how they're seen. So, yeah, I just want to change their ways of thinking because really trans women, we do a lot of worrying. Like we worry about everything. It becomes a part of the thinking. It's not just a part of the process, right? Because for most people, you think about something, you get it, you may get happy about it. You think about your options. Then you may have a little doubt and then you go on to doing what it is you want to do. Well, with a trans person, that part that you get excited about, that's very short-lived because you immediately think of all the ways that that particular thing can go wrong, specifically because you're trans, right? Then if you're black and trans, you have to think about that. That's the next layer. So I think that we come into our lives with a lot of fear and we worry where we should be thinking optimistic and where we should be anticipating versus worrying. I think that this reflection on the way that trans women and women of color and trans women of color just have to do so much more worrying or um, anticipating to move through their everyday lives is honestly, I just think it's so profound. And thank you so much for sharing it. As we kind of wrap up this conversation, I'm just wondering, what are these awards you're nominated for? Okay, I am nominated at the <clears throat> Intersection Awards, Intersection Justice 
So there's a reproductive justice group here or a nonprofit organization who focuses on reproductive justice. Sister Reach. Oh, I'm interviewing Sharice this afternoon. Oh, great. I love Sharice. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) Sharice. So, yes. And also, I'm nominated at the Focus Awards. They are a magazine, uh, and I was in the cover last January. This year, I had the pleasure of being nominated as for the visionary award so um i am just excited about these awards um and humbled but you know it it comes with a bit of sadness when i really think about it because i would like to see trans women all across the board not just trans women of color but trans women all across the board be celebrated more often and i think that the feeling that I get from being nominated for awards and, you know, being on the cover of a magazine, I think that that's a feeling every trans woman should have one day. So I'm hoping that we can spread a little bit more of that. But yeah, um, want to thank you all. Want to give a special shout out to um, everybody that I didn't say. And I'll just, I've already mentioned Sharon, Darenisha, Arisha, my, um, mentor all three of them are on my board of directors also ace brooks he's on my board of directors also toya washington she's on my board of directors and monica lusk she's on my board of directors so just wanted to shout out and yes people i have several trans women on my board um and i think that's important i challenge a lot of organizations out there to put trans women on your board not just hire them to do your work um, and other than that, I can't really, oh, and my mom, I would like to shout out my mom. I do a lot of things and I forget to send a shout out to mom. So to Jackie Tasaki, this one's for you. <laughs> Thanks so much again to Jasmine for making time for this interview. Please go follow We Care Tennessee on their website and on Facebook. You can find a link to those pages on our show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast. That's F-I-F-T-Y feministstates.com slash podcast. There you will also find the pieces I mentioned at the start of the episode about the case that is being heard in the Supreme Court today. I've also linked to all of the pages I could find of the many wonderful community members that Jasmine thanks and shouts out during this episode. So there are so many good things in the show notes. Please head to 50feministstates.com slash podcast to find them. That's it for today, but thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, I'll see you on the road. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.